This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. We have learned a lot about Vladimir Putin in the last several weeks. His aspirations for a new Russia, his willingness to go to war to achieve those aspirations. Is there a religious element to this? He has twisted Russian history a bit. Is he also twisting the history of Russian orthodoxy? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. What do we know for sure about Vladimir Putin and Orthodox Christianity? I would say that we know absolutely nothing for sure about this man and his own faith, if there is a faith there. I don't think we have any way of knowing. As the old saying goes, that's probably between him and his father confessor, if he has a father confessor, and if he believes he has sins to confess. I think the bigger question is we can state some facts about his public behavior over the last couple of decades. And I think it's very clear that he trumpets the role of Russian orthodoxy in Russia when it suits his purposes, and he ignores it completely when it doesn't. And, of course, Americans don't hear much about this because the American media is not that interested, for example, in debates in Russia about abortion or alcoholism or plunging birth rates. When that happens you're dealing with actions of the Russian Orthodox Church that in some ways conflict with America's media worldview, and thus they're not important. This war is clearly very important. So the point I'm trying to make is, how would you say that what do we know about the Catholic faith of Joe Biden? Uh, now, I'm not making a direct <laughs> comparison here between Biden and Putin. I'm talking about a mechanism. Well, I I think we 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 know that he attends mass regularly, right? And he does make frequent reference to his Catholic faith. But I would say, as in the case of Putin, not to make us too too strong a comparison when it suits his political ends. Yes, and he he loves Catholic moral theology when it supports certain line items of the budget. And he completely ignores Catholic moral theology when it has to do with American foreign policy related to trans rights or something like that, or let alone abortion. So I want to back up for a second and introduce our listeners to a term that I first heard in 1991 when I, in one of the most interesting events of my life, and boy, I would love to live through these two weeks again, now that I'm Orthodox, but I wasn't Orthodox at the time. I was an evangelical Anglican. I went to Russia in 1991 with representatives of Denver Seminary, Youth for Christ, and some other evangelical groups. We were supposed to take part in the Moscow Book Fair. Well, it turned out 
that the Moscow Book Fair was canceled because of this little thing called the coup. And we ended up holding passports into the Soviet Union a week to nine days after the coup that overthrew the Soviet government. And they didn't cancel our passports, so we went. And it was an astonishing time to be in Russia. And one of the things you heard over and over during that time was Orthodox leaders and others saying Russia is going to return to its roots. And what they meant by that was this concept of Mother Russia and the, the Russian Orthodox Church being a part of that. And there were brave and very courageous actions taken by Orthodox leaders during that time. But in that same context, I heard this very interesting term. The Russians, and see, this this is way before Putin. Oh, I guess Putin's over in the KGB at that time. The Russians have a term, and I'm gonna, I'm sure I'm going to massacre it, but it's something like podshevnik, and this term means candlestick holder. It's, it's a derisive term. It's a cynical term, but it's a very Russian term, and a, a podshevnik is a public official who shows up at Orthodox services just long enough to light a candle, be photographed, try to make the sign of the cross, and then leaves. But he gets his picture in the paper holding a candle in the cathedral, kind of bending the knee to the social role of the Orthodox Church, which means he knows something about the power of those symbols, and he knows the importance of the Church in Russian culture and in history. But does he have any personal beliefs? Well, he lights a candle. Does he say a prayer? How are we to know what's happening inside his head? For the last decade or so, one of the things I have heard Russian Orthodox Christians say, and I go to church with several and with people from other parts of the, the Slavic world, they basically want to know, is Putin an actual Christian or is he a Podshevnik? Is he someone who just knows the power of the symbolism and thus builds up the church when it suits his purpose and actually behind the scenes may even tear it down when it doesn't? What does the man actually believe? And my answer to your first question is that I don't think we have any way of knowing. But right now, this is obviously a highly relevant question. And with that in mind, I, I want to read something from a column I wrote recently. This has finally begun to get some media attention. I believe I broke this story with the help of a journalist friend in Moscow who pointed me to this document. We're now up in the hundreds of the number of Russian priests and abbots and others who have signed a letter not only protesting the war, but pleading both with Putin and their own patriarch, Patriarch Kirill, to be clear on this. And there's some extraordinary language in this. And they note that they wrote their letter after the services for the Sunday of the Last Judgment. And the Sunday of the Last Judgment is exactly what it sounds like. And it's held a week before the Orthodox interlent with forgiveness vespers which we did this past Sunday. 
So these priests wrote this piece. I'm going to read it. Listen very carefully to the theology that's in this public statement. The last judgment awaits every person. No earthly authority, no doctors, no guards will protect from this judgment. Concerned about the salvation of every person who considers himself a child of the Russian Orthodox Church, we do not want him to appear at this judgment bearing the heavy burden of mother's curses. And they're, of course, referring to the slaughter of men, women, children, and babies in Ukraine. Next statement after that reference to mother's curses. We remind you that the blood of Christ shed by the Savior for the life of the world will be received in the sacrament of communion by those who give murderous orders, not unto life, but into eternal torment. Now, would you say that that's a fairly strong theological statement? Because <laughs> I don't think there's much question who the him in that sentence is, and gives murderous orders. I don't think there's much doubt about who that is either. Now, it's very important to realize that the, the Russian bishops have been, I will painfully admit, have been quite silent. But before the war broke out, the second most powerful bishop in the Russian Orthodox Church, Metropolitan Hilarion, openly opposed the war and stated it that there was no grounds for it, no judgment, you know, and in effect, God is watching. And unless Hilar, I don't know if Hilarion has vanished. I don't know, you know, what has happened to him. But when Americans consider whether the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops will write a letter of similar strength to Joe Biden over the issue of abortion. And you say, well, abortion's not the same as the war in Ukraine. Well, it's possible to believe that both are horrible, sinful, and hellish rejections of God's word on how to treat our brothers and sisters, especially our fellow Orthodox Christians in Ukraine. But I would also like our listeners to remember that a man like Patriarch Kirill is old enough that he lived under the Soviets. I believe he became a bishop under the Soviets. And when I was there in 1991, a very courageous priest named Father Alexander Borisov, the head of the Russian Bible Society, he told me that you've got to remember that in Russia, he said, we have four kinds of bishops right now. He said, we have bishops who aren't even Christians. They're bishops like political officers that worked for the Soviet state. He said, we have bishops who cooperated with the Soviet state, even though they knew they were wrong, often in part because they feared the slaughter of their own families. Then third, he said, and these are the people he said he admired the most. He said, we have bishops that cooperated with the Soviet Union but have repented publicly to their priests and have asked for forgiveness. He said, and fourth, we then have new bishops from the era of perestroika who never had to compromise at all. And at least one of the great monasteries of Russia never compromised, never opened its doors to the Soviets. 
and refused to compromise and survived the entire Soviet era. And I'd remind our listeners that that's an era in which the Soviets closed 98% of Russia's churches, killed 200,000 bishops, priests, and nuns. That's just an estimate, but that's a low estimate. And sent 500,000 believers to die in labor camps. Now, that's before the purges of Stalin. That's before the starving of the Ukraine. And it's documented as the largest martyrdom in the history of the Christian faith. Some of the people in Russia right now, who we may chide for their lack of courage in face of Putin right now, and wish they would do more, and let me say clearly, I wish they would do more. Many, many Russian Orthodox Christians and Orthodox Christians around the world wish they would do more. But frankly, we don't know what they're doing behind the scene. At the time of the invasion of Georgia, we later found out that the Russian Orthodox Church was doing quite a bit behind the scene, pleading for a ceasefire and for Russia to stop going to war with another Orthodox nation. So what are they doing behind the scenes? We don't know. Do we wish they would do more publicly? Yes. And these courageous hundreds of priests and abbots and others are pleading with them to do more public. But at this point, I think it's safe to say that some of them may fear Vladimir Putin and may fear what would happen to them and what would fear what to happen to the church in an era when, while Russian Orthodoxy is kind of the public faith of the nation, the monasteries are growing There are many new priests, and there has been a major rebirth in the actual practice of the Orthodox Christian faith in Russia. Do they fear losing that? Do they fear another purge? How realistic are those fears? I can't answer those questions, and frankly, I'm not sure that many Americans can answer those questions right now. Very long answer, but I hope that helps. So I'm interested in how the media have covered Patriarch Kirill in in the Russian Orthodox Church, and that I think it was maybe 10 years ago he referred to Putin as a miracle of God. Has he changed his tune with the recent events? Well, it depends on what he meant by a miracle of God. I'm not sure he was making a comment about either the state of Putin's soul or of Putin's actions at that time, I think what he meant was that to have the state suddenly supporting the church on some key issues and the state helping rebuild churches, that in effect, the impact Putin was having on the church, he saw it as a miracle compared to the Soviet era. I think when you look at what the reality was in the Soviet era, then you look at the reality now, that might be a bit hyperbolic, but that I think you could say that that's what he meant, that Putin's attitudes toward the church, some of them, was resulting in actions that were quite miraculous. Once again, though, that's about the same time they're working behind the scenes on issues related to the uh, conflict in Georgia. So how was a recent sermon covered by the AP and the Moscow Times? Well, it's very interesting to read the Moscow Times, which is an independent newspaper in Moscow, 
and one that's still functioning and I do not believe has been shut down and continues to crank out a lot of news. The Associated Press story is the most important one because that's the one that most Americans would have a chance to see. I, I think it's safe to say that Americans struggle to frequently hold two ideas in their head at the same time when the two ideas may both be valid, but they clash with each other. And this sermon by Patriarch Carroll is a classic example. He appears in this sermon to say that the invasion of Ukraine is justified because of the degree to which Western Ukraine, backed by Europe and American corporations, etc., were forcing moral and social changes on the Russian-speaking and Russian culture land of, I believe it's pronounced the Donbass, the, the parts of eastern, extreme eastern Ukraine that are quite loyal to Russia on every possible level. And you couldn't create a statement he could make that would be worse in the eyes of the U.S. press. Uh, and my friend Roger has, has written a piece in which he just lays in to the patriarch for choosing this time to make a, you know, a sermon about gay parades as a, as a sign of cultural oppression while bombs are raining down on hospitals and apartment complexes in Russia. But it is important to back up for a second and understand that the patriarch may be absolutely, totally wrong to have brought this subject up at this moment and in any way as a justification for the invasion of Ukraine. And let me say right up front, I think he's totally wrong to make that connection and do that. At the same time, from the viewpoint of the Russian church, the invasion of Russian culture by the European Union and American corporations on behalf of social and moral liberalism is a huge deal. If I may, I want to flashback again just a second to 1991. The night I arrived in Moscow, we were staying in the Hotel Mir, a famous hotel, which was across the street, not from the Kremlin, but from the Russian White House, the actual office of the state of Russia, Boris Yeltsin's headquarters, in other words. And this was the building that was at the center of the coup and the attempts by the Soviet government to overthrow the coup and put the Soviet Union back on the rails. So I, I, that night when I got there, I was jet-lagged and everything else. I went for a walk, and there were bonfires burning on the lawn behind the Russian White House. And these were some of the people who were still guarding the stockades, the roadblocks and stuff that were around, the roadblocks that Russian tanks had tried to crush. And I thought, this is wild. So I, I walked in that direction, and I heard music. And I went, oh, how symbolic. Young Russians are now sitting around these campfires playing the new songs of the new Russian Revolution. How wonderful. And so I walked down there and started listening, and then I realized that these Russian kids, gypsy kids, were trying to work out the chords to the latest MTV video called Enter Sandman by Metallica because MTV had already gone live in Russia, in just in the, the week after the fall of the Soviet Union. And I watched a lot of Russian MTV after that. 
and I thought it was fascinating. The Russians don't understand the hypocrisy of American MTV, for example. I mean, that you can have a video where a woman dances around and flaunts her body and takes off part of her clothes, but she's not supposed to take off all her clothes because it's TV. Well, on Russian MTV, you had music videos with nudity and you had all kinds of wild things because the people there were trying to impress people with how Western they were and how free they were. And this, you know, this started within the first two to three days, you know, after the coup. I mean, and people were not lining up 500 deep for, for McDonald's hamburgers at the one McDonald's that opened that week in Russia because they thought this was great. They did it because it was a symbol of identifying with the West. And part of what the Russian Orthodox Church, before the Ukraine war, what Kirill is saying is very consistent with what the church has been saying for about two decades. And that is that you have the war with Ukraine, but you have this larger cultural, and he would argue spiritual war between the Russian culture and the Russian Orthodox Church and Europe, and specifically the EU, and specifically the American corporations that are pouring millions and millions, maybe billions of dollars into Eastern Europe and Russia, kind of on the condition that the people that work there follow the doctrines of Apple and Google and Facebook and other stuff. Now, once again, let me stress, does that justify the invasion and massacre of large amounts of people in Ukraine? No, it does not. But I do think it's important to understand that what Kirill is saying is not really about Ukraine. It's about how Western Ukraine has become a doorway to Europe and an example to much of other of Eastern Europe and to many people in Russia. And he clearly is threatened by what Pope Francis would call the cultural imperialism of the West on issues related to sexuality, family life, marriage, etc. So once again, I realize those are two big ideas to try to put in your head at the same time. When you listen to the sermon, you can think it was wrong to do this sermon at this time. And this man should be more courageous speaking up against the invasion of Ukraine. It's possible to have that idea in your head and know that that's correct. While at the same time, listen to what he's saying about the tensions between Russia and Europe and realize that that, that too is a part of this conflict and part of what Russians, including many Russians who don't favor Putin, they're very worried about what Western industries and governments are doing to Eastern Europe and Russia. And that's a separate issue for them from the fact that they reject Putin and reject the invasion of Ukraine. One of the things that has been getting a lot of press for the last two weeks is Putin's romantic view of the Russian past. And yeah. some he gave a speech, a, a very long history. Yeah. A kind of Putin-esque history lesson in advance of the invasion, yeah. justifying what he was about to do. And the press has said, well, he's rewriting Russian history. You've taken up a detail here recently where the press is assuming that he's also rewriting Orthodox history. What's that all about? Well, he's not rewriting 
Russian history. He's twisting it. And the fact that he's twisting it in a way that favors his invasion doesn't mean that that original history of the formation and the baptism of the Kevian Rus and the creation of the, the Russian concept of a people and of the tribes of, the, of, of ancient Russia and how orthodoxy was the uniting force there. And that, by the way, I stress it again, all of that began in Kiev. I mean, it's a very important city in how Russians view themselves and how they view the world. Moscow is power. St. Petersburg is culture. And Kiev is the spiritual heart of Russian monasticism and spirituality, which makes it an incredibly symbolic thing to both Ukrainians and Russians and people who consider themselves both. So something to, to really be dangerous. Have you ever heard the concept that to, for something to be really dangerous, it has to have a lot of truth in it? If you're going to try to mislead people, it helps to tell them something that's about 75% true and then about 25% false. And the false is what allows you to use it for your purpose. I would say that that is what Putin is doing with the concept of the, of the Russian mind and its history and its culture. This is a huge subject. It's hard to talk about. But Putin is twisting something that historically is real. He did not create the idea of Orthodox Russia. He did not create the idea of Mother Russia. He didn't create the idea of the Kevian Rus and the baptism of the Rus into Orthodoxy in, I think, 988 or whatever the exact year was. And the monastery of the Kevian Caves was founded in like 1012. And that's how old some of these things are. That's considerably before Vladimir Putin. And I guarantee you that to Russians who are serious Orthodox believers, they're trying to hold two ideas in their mind at the same time right now. They're trying to reject, as we've seen in the petition and a lot of other things, they're trying to reject the invasion. And we don't know what they're doing behind the scenes, you know, in terms of their reactions to Putin. But at the same time, they're aware of the fact that Russia is under attack, not from Ukrainian planes and jets and things, but for 20 years, Russia has been under attack in their view as Orthodox believers by the moral, sexual, and cultural revolutions of the West. Best represented by American entertainment, media, corporate structures, gender flags, and the whole bit. So yes, they would be disturbed about gay pride marches in the heavily Russian cities of eastern Ukraine. Does that justify the invasion? Absolutely not. Is it a serious issue? To many, many Russian believers, it is. And Putin apparently is smart enough to be able to twist that to his own purposes 
as a way of trying to justify the invasion. Finally, with a minute here, Terry, what stories need to be written vis-a-vis Putin, Russia, and the religion angle that is so obvious here? Well, it's obvious, but I don't know how you report it right now. I don't know how you get into Russia to do it. I don't know if you can. It's kind of like covering the true Orthodox Church under the Soviets. It's, it's in an underground. And right now, I guarantee you that the people who are making bold statements in private are somewhat worried that those will go public and that they'll end up being purged. I don't know how I would cover this right now. But I will say this, people need some folks who read and speak Russian, and they need to be reading the websites of the Russian Orthodox Church, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church that's loyal to Moscow, where people have been very blunt in their condemnation of the invasion and of Putin. They need to get them some Orthodox people to help translate what's being said. Like that theological passage I just read you about receiving Holy Communion to your own damnation if you have ordered murderous deeds. Do you expect to see that passage in the New York Times? Well, not likely. And do you think that anyone would know the theological significance of what's being said there? I don't think they'd be able to sort that one out. And that's my point. I mean, at some point, they're going to need some people. And I've been telling people, listen to the Orthodox critics of Putin. And especially the ones that are still linked to the Russian Orthodox Church and to the Ukrainian Orthodox Church that remains, for the most part, loyal to Moscow at this moment. Listen to the monks of the Lavra. Ironically, the other day, they tried to make a statement against the war, and their website's been canceled in the West. So no one in the West could see that the most important monks in all of Russian spirituality were condemning the war. We couldn't read it because we canceled their website. There's so many ironies, so many ideas to try to hold in your head at the same time. I think right now our publications need some people who speak Orthodox in addition to some, some people who speak Russian. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.